You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. Our guest today is John Zimmer, co-founder and president of Lyft, the on-demand transportation company. John tells us how Lyft responded to the challenge presented by COVID-19 and shares his vision for the future of mobility. We discuss the importance of rapid innovation in the face of changing customer needs, along with the enduring value of hospitality. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft and president of Lyft. Great to have you with us today. Great to be here. I wanted to ask you just right off the bat, ride-hailing companies like yours are already having a nightmarish year due to COVID. And, you know, the pandemic's made a lot of people pretty squeamish about getting in someone else's car. So what's on the horizon? You know, everybody was getting in cars that were ride-sharing cars, and a lot of people were getting in your cars before this. And how is this affecting your business now? And what do you see on the horizon? Yeah, so at its peak, in the beginning of the pandemic, let's say, you know, March, April timeline, we saw up to 75% of the ridership go down. We've now recovered to about 50%. So never thought I'd be that excited about having 50% of the original business, but that is progress. We're happy, you know, still one out of every two rides uh, are happening even with, you know, various lockdowns. So it's a, it's an essential service that many people are still using. The other thing I can say is that we, you know, have taken this incredibly seriously and built an entirely new safety procedure for the rides. Uh, in our ride sharing business so that there is a personal certification, health certification that both driver and rider certify that they are wearing a mask for each ride and that uh, we've shipped out thousands of plastic partitions. The driver and rider also certify that they have not been in contact with anyone to their knowledge that has COVID. And and so that's really helped uh, a lot of people that potentially were taking transit that don't want to be in a large environment with many people are still finding safety in rideshare. We also have a business now with bikes. So we own the system City Bike in New York City, for example. And that business is actually doing more rides now uh, than it was a year ago. I want to bring in Scott. Scott, jump in. Yes, first, I'm really glad Lyft is operating. In fact, I, I made my first business trip last week, post the lockdowns here, and I took a lift to the airport and because there were no cabs on the street of D.C. So that was that was good. What I realized is the taxi business is even worse shape than Lyft. There were 5,000 medallion taxis in D.C. before COVID. There are 1,000 now. So that's an 80% decline in the number of vehicles. So this, is, this has hit the industry hard, no question. Now, there are a couple of things that are happening that are likely to slow things down for you. And I wanted to get your point of view on that because you know, about 5% of us worked from home before COVID. The projection is maybe 20% of us will remain in the sort of remote work situations after all restrictions are lifted. 
also people tend to be moving out of cities now. There's a great demand for suburban real estate. And lo and behold, there's demand for cars. Cars had a V-shaped recovery and people are buying them again. So what's your take on all this? How does that affect the future of what was like started as an urban phenomenon like ride sharing? Yeah, I'd say, you know, we're, we're certainly at an inflection point given COVID for lots of changes in behavior. Uh, you, you know, you listed how people are going to live, how people are going to work. I mean, that's fundamental. To an entrepreneur, that is an opportunity. I see that as an opportunity. Lyft was founded on the idea of changing behavior. Obviously, there are behaviors that change that help the business and, and changes that could potentially hurt the business. But, you know, if we go back 10 years ago and we had this conversation, I said, hey, millions, hundreds of millions of people and rides are going to be completed in personal vehicles. Most people would have told me that I was crazy. Um, and that that wouldn't have happened. And now 10 years later, and Lyft is about eight years old, but 10 years later, that's happening at a significant scale, even in a pandemic. And so what, it, what I would say is that the, the changes of people moving away from car ownership, you know, young generations waiting longer to get their license, having more affordable ways of getting around and, you know, in a way, cost sharing the ownership of a vehicle, I don't see that changing in a broad way. I want to push back on that for a second, though, because, you know, I, I saw what you're saying very clearly with my oldest teenage son. And I saw a lot of his peers, you know, my son couldn't wait to get his license, of course, but like some of his peers, you know, still don't have their licenses. Now, you know, people are really worried about germs. And like Scott said, cars are, are back, sales are up. Are you worried that the germ phobia and that the health consciousness is going to mean that people are going to want to get their licenses again and, and kids are going to, you know, really want to be in their own cars and young people aren't going to, their whole behavior isn't going to be centered around ride sharing? I agree there is a near term trend when there is a pandemic of which there is not a vaccine, of which there is, you know, not great information because there's, you know, too much information spreading around with, without clear guidance. I you know agree that will happen in this environment but this is you know if we talk again in a year I'm very confident that we will return back to the trends we were seeing previously I mean the the things that don't change it's it's fine to get around now when there's less traffic but traffic's going to come back and there's only limited space for parking of vehicles we're hitting the peak of you know in a normal environment post pandemic we will still have those conditions that made it undesirable to own a car. If we, again, like our vision and our belief is that if you think about our country, the car and freedom are almost synonymous. You know, the way we've been, way it's been marketed, the way it feels, the, the reality of it at many times, it is a source of freedom. But more and more traffic, the cost of car ownership, which is $9,000 every year for the average American household, Americans spend more money on the car than they do on food and healthcare. And the realities are that it becomes, you know, this $9,000 ball and chain, not, not freedom. It's stressful. It's, you have to deal with all the maintenance. We're not saying we want to take away that freedom. We, I actually believe we can give a much better, realer sense of transportation freedom. You tap a button, you get a car within minutes. You want to rent a car from Lyft. We have Lyft rentals now, and you can use that vehicle to go away on a weekend trip. You're in New York City, you want to ride a bike, it's a block away, you can ride a bike, you want to get on transit, you can get on transit. We're just offering a way better overall transportation experience. 
at a more affordable cost. That equation, that proposition does not change coming out of the pandemic. It's fascinating what you're saying and equating it with freedom. You know, I think about it that way too. Look, look at Jack Kerouac on the road, the original book about freedom and movement. What, what's your vision for the future? You know, I mean, if ride sharing is coming back, what's your vision for the future of the company and for future freedom around all this? For me personally, I was inspired by a course I took in city planning. And we looked back at the economy in our country and um, progress in our country and how it often tied to canal infrastructure, railroad infrastructure, highway infrastructure. And I started thinking, what would be next, both from a sense of freedom, from a sense of opportunity, from a sense of economic development. And, you know, when they were building the canals, they weren't thinking, hey, in 100 years, no one's going to care so much about this. And so I said, you know, this was in 2006, I said, what are we missing? We're staring at cars, we're staring at the highways. There's something else coming. What is it going to look like? So to answer your question, it is you do not need to own a vehicle. You will have access to the vehicle or to transportation whenever you need it. And it will be simple and enjoyable. Eventually, there'll be autonomous vehicles in many core you know, urban downtowns, as well as in suburban areas. And you'll be able to not have to worry about parking, not have to worry about maintenance because you know, all of those upkeep items will be on a company like ours to do for you. So I actually think we will realize the freedom that was sold as part of car ownership in an even greater way. And you'll have access to a vehicle, but you won't have to deal with the negatives, the, the stresses associated with it. You've got adoption happening. It's, you've got the little interruption now because of the, the pandemic, but your trajectory in the long run is still the same. And your conversion rate actually is helped by things like people who don't want to take public transit. So I can see the model working. Obviously, for me, freedom was turning 16 and driving away from my parents' house. That's, that's what we all really wanted to do. And you can, you can do that in, in a lift just as well as you can do it behind the wheel of your own car. So th that part still works. Now, how does the disruption in the travel industry affect you in the near term? Say, if your long-term trajectory is the same, so take me through the next two to five years as business travel either gradually comes back or doesn't and how the business model has changed in that near term. Zooming out, we think of, you know, we want to provide all your personal transportation that you will need. And that for an individual changes, right? There's various use cases, maybe a, a, a clean way of thinking about it. So there's the airport use case, which, you know, typic in a typical year, we're investing a lot in improving and making that really smooth, you know, aligning with the airlines uh, on when you're going to land to make sure your ride's ready for you, things like that. In a year like this, where that's not as much the use case, we'll focus in other areas. Obviously, we're focusing on health safety within the vehicle because that's uh, the primary use case people are, are having is how can I have a safe way of getting where I need to go right now? We're also focusing on, on the other modes that I mentioned, like bikes. And then, you know, we're exploring ways to give our drivers more opportunities as well as to grow the business by helping power some deliveries directly for retailers. Not building a consumer delivery platform like a DoorDash or Uber Eats or Grubhub, but instead working directly with certain retailers who want to be able to sell directly to their own customers without going through a platform, but need 
access to the million plus drivers that we have that provide rides on Lyft. John, another thing that you've really done that's interesting to me is you've pledged that every vehicle by 2030 in your company is going to be electric. How are you going to do that? Yeah. So the neat thing about the economics behind an electric vehicle for Lyft is that the payback on a battery versus fuel is highly tied to utilization of the battery or the asset, the car, right? And so someone who owns a car personally has extremely low utilization. I believe it's about four to 5% of the time you use your car, meaning 95% of the time your car is idle and parked. And, and obviously that same goes with the battery. So when you have much higher utilization of someone who's either using the car for work, or if we have it in our rental fleet, and we can have higher utilization of the asset, then the payback on new technology like batteries is much quicker. So one, we believe we can have a positive economic story for our drivers by ensuring we push towards this as well as for the business. And it's something that riders will be demanding more and more. And bottom line, it's the right thing to do to reduce emissions in our, in our cities. So you're going to require all your drivers to have electric cars? If we have to require it, so, so this is, we have 10 years. And if, if in the ninth or 10th year we have to require it, I don't think we've properly done our job. So one, it should be an economic, obvious decision by that point. We should create the right platform, the right charging infrastructure with partners to enable that. It should be a financial no-brainer for drivers using the Lyft platform. Two, we should have spent over the next decade time with uh, policymakers to make sure that, that we get the policy right. Oftentimes, if you look at incentives that are going to EVs, electric vehicles in market, they go to someone who can afford to buy an expensive Tesla and uses it 4% of the time instead of a car that's going to be utilized 5, 10 times more, which means much higher emission reduction. And so if we work with policymakers, I also believe there are better aligned incentives to, to create policies that push people using kind of fleet vehicles that are more clean. Well, you're moving a company that is basically founded on better utilizing assets. You're using people's time and equipment and space on the highway better than the alternative uh, when it comes down to that. How is that idea uh, showing up elsewhere? Who else is in your space and how are you out innovating them uh, when it comes to finding a set of assets that are underutilized anywhere in the transport sector and pushing it forward? Yeah, just to zoom out for one second, when I studied in college hospitality and, and that was, you know, you look at the, the business of a hotel and it's all about occupancy. The main metric any hotel owner will talk about is their occupancy. And I was taking that city planning class thinking, what is the occupancy of these cars or of the seats in these cars? It's even worse because the average car has, you know, something like 1.1 people in it when there's, you know, four or five or six seats. So you're right. That is the premise of the business is better occupancy, better utilization. And that's true. There, there's opportunities in, in transportation. There's opportunities, you know, in, in housing, in, in vacation stay. Obviously, Airbnb does this to, to a certain extent. But I really don't believe there's a bigger opportunity than in our space. I mean, you know, the largest household expense in the United States is housing. You, you are in your house more than 4% of the time. <laughs> and and it, I don't see that model changing. People are going to live in either a house or apartment. 
you know, have a more permanent place that they live. The second highest household expense is transportation. And 95% of the money you spend on transportation on average is spent on a car, of which you use 4% of the time. There's no bigger underutilized asset that can transform someone's economics and quality of life like the one we're going after. So it's an underutilized depreciating asset. Yeah, there's no bigger opportunity than this. Now, there there are opportunities around the fringes within transportation. Since you asked, you know, a bike, for example, in a city like New York, I think that's a, you know, it's a phenomenal product city bike. You know, if you live in a small apartment like I used to in, in Manhattan, and uh, I was up, uh, I had, you know, there's no elevator, it was a walk-up apartment up eight flights of stairs, having a, a bike that doesn't get stolen in New York that I can always have uh, ready to go a couple blocks from me is quite a, a phenomenal product. And that's what we're doing on the bike share side. And then that bike is, you know, to your point, utilized at a much higher degree than, you know, maybe the, a bike that I would have to carry up the eight flights of stairs. You know, in car rentals, you can continue to push the utilization, but the primary opportunity is is for car ownership to to transform into car access. Well, I feel like we should give your alma mater, Cornell, a shout out because you obviously picked up quite a lot there. And I just love Cornell because, you know, the greatest rock concert of all time was held there, you know, Cornell 77 for all you Grateful Dead fans out there. And, you know, one of America's greatest college towns, of course. Let me ask you this. So some people think, and I'm not personally one of them, but I just want to, I want to ask you this, this is out there. In normal times, are you adding to congestion because there's more drivers out there driving people around? I think it, de- it depends on the city. In some cases, we've reduced it. And, and I, I believe there's also studies that say in certain cases, uh, by creating more access to transportation uh, and new modes like this, that it has increased. The goal is absolutely to decrease it. A great study that was done, I don't know how long, maybe 10 years ago or more, on car sharing. So that is like zip car type car sharing. At first, because they created a new way for people to get around, vehicle miles traveled went up. They did the study another, I don't know how many years later, let's say five, when they came back and did it, and they found the opposite was true because it was enough time for people to change behavior. Which changed the market. Which people then used transit more, they walked more, they used car sharing, they didn't get that second car for the household. Over the last two, you know, two years, we've done a study that on average each year, about 250,000 people because of Lyft are getting rid of a vehicle. And so it's starting. You know, you can, you can go from a two-car household to a one-car household much more easily because of solutions like Lyft. But we have a ways to go and, and we need policy support. You know, we, we believe congestion pricing. It's not popular. But if, if you want to reduce traffic, it is the one way to do it for sure. Right. Yes. There is infinite demand for a free good. So. Yeah. Yeah. Take exactly. So take congestion pricing, take the money that comes from it, invest in public transportation to help give, you know, broader population access to quality uh, options. That's the best way to address traffic. But it has to be congestion pricing on all vehicles, not just, you know, a subset of vehicles. Do you think policymakers in Washington understand your set of issues and understand your vision for where things are headed? Now, you know, that's a broad statement. Some do. Obviously, I spent my life, this is, you know, me and my co-founder, Logan, it's our life's work. And so I, I think we, 
We understand it very deeply. As we were talking about before the podcast, we're fortunate to work with former Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox, who leads our policy team. And he he understands it very deeply. And, and he also teaches us about, you know, what, what current policymakers think and, and what the near-term things they need to solve. I, I think as we think about infrastructure, you know, coming out of this election, there is a massive opportunity to, instead of continuing to invest in the same infrastructure that basically creates traffic, if you if you create parking, you create traffic. If you create roads, you create more traffic. It doesn't more roads doesn't lead to less traffic. And so we we need to you know, you can have policies where instead of building apartment buildings that require parking, you know, it's optional to the to the builder if they want to add that. Yeah, I mean, I've even read about, you know, entrepreneurs who are thinking about and I think they're doing this in San Francisco, repurposing parking lots for, you know, pop-up restaurants and all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, there's you know, coming from if if we want to build for the next hundred years, we can build an entirely new transportation, you know, ecosystem. It doesn't, you know, we're we're still gonna have roads, we're still gonna have some parking. It's not but but we can start changing the way we use space and and the space we get back in our cities, you know, that, that extra parking lot that's no longer needed can be for local housing, of which many cities need, you know, low income housing or local businesses. So that they can be near to the customers and compete with, you know, things like Amazon. There's a big opportunity, and and it, it would mean a lot of jobs in in building this new infrastructure. So, I'd love to, you know, make sure that the conversation that's had over the next few years on infrastructure does something that is not just status quo. If I can ask about the service side of the business, because ultimately you are providing a service. First of all, let me confess my preference as a customer. Um, I prefer Lyft to the other guys. And I do it based on the experience I've had with drivers. And I know some, some drivers drive for both brands, but I've consistently had better luck with Lyft drivers. And I wondered how you do that because uh, the people seem happy doing what they're doing. They're motivated. Uh, they like the, being able to control their schedule. And they generally are, are people I, I have a good time traveling with, even if it's just 10 blocks. Yeah. I mean, one, I'm really happy to hear that. I didn't know what you were going to say when you had that opening part of your statement. But again, my, my background's in hospitality. So I always thought about, you know, the end customer is the rider. And we can only provide a great experience in partnership with the driver. And if the driver on Lyft is happy, is motivated, has trust with the company, is shown respect by the company, communicated in the right way with the company, and we're always trying to get better. But that's always been at the, the root of how we think about drivers. I drive every year on the platform to make sure I understand the experience. And the brand stands for the humanity in the in the situation, not just the the technology or the transaction. It's broader than that. Our business is a people business, is a hospitality business. So I don't I don't think there's there's one thing. I mean, we had many driver-friendly features before Uber did, you know, whether it was instant payouts, same-day pay, whether it was tipping, things that they followed us on. There's, you know, many, many features and ways we've invested first in the driver experience. But there's also just kind of the, the communication style and building that trust along the way. And we're not perfect and, and there's more we can keep doing. But it is absolutely essential to providing a great quality services is to build the right relationship with the driver community. But it's interesting to me that you describe your company as a hospitality business versus, say, a tech company. 
Others, I think, would just say they're a tech company. And so that's the difference is we create a transportation platform and we infuse it with hospitality and infuse it with technology. Really interesting. I, I mean, what, what else can you tell us just in closing? I mean, what are you optimistic about? I mean, everybody right now feels kind of down in the dumps and we're with good reason. You know, we've been shut in. We've been we all know people who have been sick. Some of us know people who've lost their lives. You know, it's scary out there and, and we've been grounded. You know, we haven't been able to fly. A lot of people haven't had the freedom of movement. But what gives you optimism for the future? Agreed. It, it is a it is a tough moment. And a lot of people are going through tough times, whether it's with COVID or with financial situation, what gives me optimism is that out of these challenges, I, you know, I'm part of and, and witnessing many conversations about people wanting to fix things. And I think the last few years has really woken people up, shaken people a bit out of status quo. And I don't know how long it's going to take. But I feel strongly that we're moving towards better understanding of, of each other, better sense of both bigger opportunity, bigger kind of broader economic growth that is more inclusive. And every you know year, there's another new generation of people. I have two daughters that obviously my daughters are too young, four and a half and one and a half. But I you know talk to, to young kids that are just coming up or, or that are starting in our company and they want to fix things and we have the means to fix things. And it's no longer, can we build this technology? It's how are we going to use this technology? Why are we going to use this technology? One thing I always talk about with our teams, it's not about the what, it's about the why. And so I'm seeing a lot more people being aware of the purpose behind their actions. And from these challenges, I, I'm optimistic that we can move forward in a more positive way. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. And let me tell you, as a father of two daughters, they'll be bugging you for those car keys before you know it. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to make sure that, uh, that they don't uh, through, through, through the business. Just get them the app. Yeah. They just need the app. Exactly. I have 10 years to get a little bit farther with the business such that they don't want it. I wish you all the luck of the world with that. But thanks so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.